Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. We have talked previously on this podcast about the way that AI chatbots are now being used as dating coaches with, shall we say, mixed results. On today's episode, we're going to explore a different aspect of tech and AI, which is the evolution of sex robots. And to do so, we have with us one of the internationally best-known experts on this topic, Dr. Kate Devlin. We are thrilled to have with us today Dr. Kate Devlin, who joins us from the UK, where she is a reader in artificial intelligence and society in the Department of Digital Humanities of King's College London. Kate studied archaeology before turning, as she says, from the past to the future by heading into computer science, the field in which she completed her PhD. Kate published in 2018 a fascinating book called Turned On, Science, Sex, and Robots, which seeks to understand and explain the ethical and social implications of technology and intimacy. She has also given two TED Talks about sex robots. As usual, you can find all the info about our guest and her book in the show notes, of course. Kate, welcome to Strangers on the Internet. Let me guess, you did not think growing up as a young child in Northern Ireland that AI and sex robots would be your field of scholarly study and expertise someday, did you? I did not. When you grow up in Northern Ireland in the 80s and 90s, you know, it's very culturally conservative. It's quite the surprise to end up in this field. So launching straight into it, you seem skeptical of some of the moral panic around sex robots. Why do you think there's such anxiety about them? And what makes you think differently than those clutching their pearls about it? It's really normal to be skeptical about technological change. We see it all the time. We see it with any technology that's introduced. People panic and it's a a fear about loss of agency, a fear about being replaced. And you don't get more fearful than being replaced in the bedroom. I mean, that's like a fundamental threat to our existence. But when I started researching this back in 2015, there were all these headlines about how these sex robots, female sex robots, fembots, were going to be taking over. And As someone working in AI and robotics, to me, that just didn't ring true. I wasn't seeing any evidence of that in the research areas. And the more I looked at it, the less evidence I found. So I'm very skeptical about scare stories that suggest this is the next wave of relationships. I don't think it is that at all. And I'm also skeptical about claims that it's going to be damaging in some way because I haven't seen any evidence for that either. Can you talk to us some about the gender differences, if they exist, and who buys sex robots and for what purpose? Because I feel like when I've ever heard about sex robots or sex dolls, I always hear about it with men. Are there gender differences? It's incredibly gendered. So to start with, just to disappoint people, there aren't really any sex robots out there. There are some prototypes from a handful of workshops around the world. But essentially, there's no mass production of these things. And the closest we have in existence already is the sex doll. And yes, that's incredibly gendered. It tends to be men buying dolls that are female, dolls that are made to look like very reductive stereotypes of women. There are also gay men buying 
male versions of these dolls and there are a handful of women buying these as well and owning these dolls but it's incredibly difficult to find women who will openly talk about this it's very very niche for women so it's niche enough for men it's super niche when it comes to women so there's a huge amount of gendering going on and i think from that come these stereotypes suggestions that the men who buy these dolls must be these weirdo loners in their basements alone who can't form functional relationships and actually that's not entirely true at all and by contrast you get a lot of comments about well women don't need that because they've got sex toys that's a slightly different thing so there's something in the shape and form this human representation there's something there that makes a difference and there's something there that's heavily gendered does it also have to do with kind of what is stereotypically thought of as the active versus the passive role in sexual intercourse, right? So it's like, okay, the sex doll, even if not very advanced in mass production, like you just said, can kind of just quote unquote lie there. I mean, is that sort of a, a practical problem in all this? I think it probably does feed into it. I would say that that probably contributes i'd also say there's a lot of social conditioning going on so that well for example it's pretty easy for women to find sex and as you will know from the dating sites if you're a woman and you go online and you say you're looking for sex you will be inundated not quite as easy for the men and actually the research that i was doing we find that rather than just sex, a lot of people were interested in dolls and robots for a companionship point of view. And that's also very hard to find as a man because women can get that emotional connection very, very easily. We've been socialized into making friends with other women, to forming emotional bonds, whereas the sort of toxic masculinity environment that men are being raised in means that they don't find it as easy to make those emotional connections quite a lot of the time. So there's also that too, that this companionship element offered by a doll or a robot is very appealing too. Could you speak some about that companionship element? What about having this doll or robot makes them feel as though they have a companion? The research that I've been doing and that my PhD student has been doing, we have been looking at communities of people who would be interested in owning sex robots. And one of the communities is the doll, sex doll community. And they've been incredibly gracious in helping with the research. And one of the things when I've talked to people who own dolls, one of the things they're very clear about, and one of the things they want to emphasize is that it's not just about sex, that there is a companionship that comes from that. For some people, it's that's the essence. That's why they are interested in this form of relationship, this parasocial relationship with the, with the doll or robot. For others, it's because they admire the craft and skill that goes into the creation of these objects. It's because they want to pose them, model them and photograph them. But when you look at the advertising on the sites that sell sort of high-end sex dolls, it's all framed around companionship. She will be there for you. She will be your perfect partner. So they're selling this vision of a relationship, not just a sexual relationship, but an emotional one as well. And the people who have dolls that they bond with, that they become attached to, and there's no delusion here, they're perfectly aware that these are dolls, but they enjoy the fact that they can form a companionship with them. And it's a very important part of it. So I, I think that's, an incredibly interesting thing because it's dismissed the whole concept of the sex doll and the sex robot is dismissed as being something that's purely about physical pleasure but there's much more to it than that so one fairly dark take i thought uh, came from british journalist jenny Kleeman, who wrote in her book sex and vegan meat quote 
The people who make sex robots are making slaves, not human slaves, of course, but slaves who will one day be almost indistinguishable from humans. If they succeed, it will become normal for us to share our homes with beings we never have to empathize with, who exist only to fulfill our every wish, and who do everything that most humans would rather not do. And she concludes, this really isn't about sex at all. What's your reaction to that? This kind of conflates a few different things. So this idea that we are creating slaves, that's actually something that's had a lot of debate in the AI and robotics community. And there's been papers written about this, that, you know, robots should not be our slaves and we should get away from the very use of the word slaves, which has such negative connotations, rightly so. And these are not beings. You used you know, Jenny in that quote, the word beings were used. And they're not beings. There's nothing sentient here. We're so far off having any kind of sentient robotics and sentient AI. We might never have that. We don't know. So from that aspect, I'm not worried. I think what she may be alluding to there is that if we treat things as objects that look like us, what if that spills into real life? And we've seen that argument time and time again with things like computer video games and violence which people have been worried about for years. Is this going to have a knock-on effect in society if children, adolescents, young people are playing violent video games? Will we see a corresponding rise in violence? And we have not. We absolutely have not. Given the scale of the video game industry, you would expect much more of a correlation there, and there isn't. it just isn't there. And if we look at something recent, like the rise in voice assistants, there's been a worry that if we're not polite to our voice assistants, what happens if we're not polite in real life to other people? Well, you know, this doesn't make sense. First of all, a voice assistant is just a glorified search engine. You don't need to be even talking in sentences to a voice assistant. I'm actually quite nice to voice assistants and chatbots because I don't know if there's ever going to be a human behind them. So when I'm online and I'm talking to a bank, I don't really know if there's a customer service agent there or not. But that said, <laughs> we are really good as humans of code switching, of moving between different social categories. So I will talk to my boss differently than I will talk to my child. I will talk to a stranger differently than I talk to my doctor. We very quickly learn to negotiate those conversations and we learn how to handle different people in different contexts and different settings. And we do that for the technology as well. So in fact, we're living at a really, really interesting time where this is emerging social category of robotics and AI that we are negotiating our way through the world with. And there's a researcher, Julie Carpenter, who has studied military robots and bomb disposal robots and military personnel and has looked at the way in which those bonds are formed to the point where these soldiers were holding funerals for bomb disposal robots that were destroyed. And you know that, that emotional bond is really strong, but they're perfectly aware that these are not real things, that these are not sentient. But the code switching happens, the categorization happens. So, you know, is that going to spill into real life if we're rude to a robot? No, I don't think so. We are really easily aware of what those category boundaries are. I still have some questions. So one is, you know, chat GPT has been a thing that has been in the news a lot lately about AI that can produce documents, papers, poems, whatever that sounds as though a human wrote them. And so there's been a lot of response in academia about that, about, okay, well, if you really look at it, you can tell that these aren't written by humans, things like that. But if you think about, if I think about that technology and the lightning speed at which technology advances anyway, but even where it's at right now, like if we pair that chat GPT with a 
robot slash doll, to me that starts to seem almost more real. You've got a human form and you've got, it's not sentient, of course, but it is is something that can respond intelligently to you. What are your thoughts on will that happen? What might the world look like if that does? Oh, that is happening. And it's been so interesting. The past couple of months, I've been incredibly busy just kind of looking at this fallout of ChatGPT. I mean, this was only emerged to the general public in November 2022. So we've only had it for, you know, a couple of months already. It's making a huge impression at the coherence and the fluid conversations that come out of it. And of course, that information sounds plausible. But it's not always true. So we don't necessarily know that anything chat GPT generates is real. There could be a ton of disinformation in there, but it sounds really convincing. And up until now, AI conversations with robots, and particularly with sex robots, so there has this one prototype, Harmony, that comes out of the real doll creators of its creations. It had its own AI personality, which you could download separately as an app. So you could have this girlfriend app on your phone or on your tablet. With ChatGPT, that's become much more fluid. However, ChatGPT isn't, it isn't working with real-time access to the web. It's building on training from pre-2021. It, I mean, it probably will expand and it probably will have more of that access. Right now, it's pretty limited. But yes, we are going to see better and better large language models that lead to better and better conversations with AI and more and more convincing ones. And the excitement in that, I think it's pretty good. My only concern there is, well, first of all, that we can't verify whether or not that information is true unless we go and have a proper look at what's saying. I think it would be that we need to know when we're hearing from an AI. We need there to not be deception. And this whole interaction with robots and AI works great for us if we know we're talking to robots and AI. Once you start bringing deception into it, people get angry and upset if they find out they're being deceived. So we have to keep that honesty and transparency somehow and make sure that people know who they're talking to and when. I've got one more for you, which is, so if we look even back to 2001, Steven Spielberg came out with the movie AI Artificial Intelligence, which features a variety of robots, including sex robots. And one of the themes is jealousy between humans and robots. You have humans angry that their spouses are quote unquote cheating on them with sex robots. And the robots sad that they will never be loved the same way as a human would be. So we've talked some about the sentient, like the robots aren't actually sentient, but what about the, so I guess I've got a two part question here. These people who are purchasing and engaging with sex dolls or sex robots, are they primarily single people? Do we see people in relationships also engaging in this? And what do you think about the idea of cheating with a robot, especially as you said, when they also form a form of companionship with them? Okay, so yes, there are people who own sex dolls and who are in relationships, very happy relationships, and the doll is part of that or a separate part their partner is not involved with. It can vary. So there's no real single profile of a doll owner. They do vary. The profile tends to be that these are men with some money and employment which is how they get their money so they tend to be quite well off to be able to afford owning a doll or paying towards a, a prototype robot but yeah you know there, there are people who are perfectly happy in a relationship and a doll or a robot becomes part of that so it's not just people on their own that, that have these things in terms of cheating so technically 
technically and legally it's not cheating because you couldn't get a divorce on the grounds that your husband was cheating on you with a sex robot. And certainly in the UK, you can't even get a divorce if someone is cheating on you with a member of the same sex. So it can only be adultery if it's with the opposite sex. The UK law is very archaic in that way. So that's quite interesting. So legally, it doesn't count because it's not another human, you know? You could probably put it under some kind of uh, poor behavior on your your partner's part. But I think with all of these relationships, right, it's about it's about what you do and your own boundaries and what's suitable for your relationship. So we can't be prescriptive. And what I think is cheating may not be what someone else thinks is cheating. You know, is an emotional affair as bad as having a physical affair? For some people, it will be, absolutely. For others, that will not be a boundary they worry about. So really, that's going to be down to the people involved in the relationship. Well, and along those lines, I mean, some people consider using pornography a form of cheating. Again, maybe not legally, right? But morally, in in that context, I'm sort of wondering whether you're concerned that while sex robots might never be as awesome as humans in all sorts of ways, right? That, you know what, maybe they could just be good enough, just like how pornography is good enough for some people. And then when they're weighing, oh, I don't know, should I change my bad behavior? Let's say I'm a man and I am dating women. And now would I rather have to treat women well? And now everybody wants all this egalitarian stuff. Or you know what, maybe it's just good enough to have the sex robot. We're like, yeah, maybe the sex won't be as great. And maybe the conversation won't be as scintillating. But you know, at least like she's not going to be as demanding. There's going to be an element of that, I think. I don't think that sex robots in the current form that they're being prototyped which is essentially a sex doll with some mechanization or some automation i don't think those are ever going to become mainstream they are far too niche they're really taboo it's very very difficult to make a human-like robot computationally and also really expensive and also from a practical perspective where do you keep your sex robot i mean do you have your own special cupboard for your sex robot these are big things and they're quite heavy the dolls that these are based on they can't stand up on their own you have to carry them around they don't really have any structure to them you know they kind of just are heavy and they lie there so we've got a long way to go before we have anything resembling a realistic human robot whether that's a sex one or not it's really difficult to do and what i do think we're more likely to see is an ai version with a virtual avatar where you can have conversations with a character that you know can talk dirty to you or talk romantically to you or be nice to you or flirtatious with you and maybe some sex tech that does not look human, that can provide a physical counterpart to that. It might not look human at all. It could be, you know, a blanket that is made up of a breast or <laughs> maybe it's a vibrating cushion that you can put on your body. I mean, the tubes that you can wrap around you that squeeze you, it could be anything. But I don't think it's realistic that we're going to have this replacement of other humans. And one of the other things that I think is key is that this technology doesn't have to replace human relationships. It can augment them and it can be a mediation tool for human human contact. So we may be able to better interact with each other via technology. That could be long distance. That could be, you know, remotely. That could be in the same place, but using different sorts of tech. So there's lots of scope that doesn't just mean we, we like a female form, reductive female stereotype in robotic form. 
You know, it's so funny you're mentioning that about long distance because I remember very distinctly already in the 90s seeing on a German talk show, people talk about some of this tech and like someone was like all hooked up with all these wires and I guess somebody could remotely write send signals and this stuff has been so slow to come, right? Like it has not really been this, like a lot of these things, I think virtual reality stuff has been, by the way, pun unintended, obviously, earlier. I was thinking it the whole time. (laughs) And I'll see if I edit this out or not. But, But a lot of the stuff that I thought, that many people thought would be much faster to arrive did not actually get to a point. And part of that is what you're saying, the expense and the sort of weirdness of it and the, the nicheness of it and all of that. Right. So teledildonics, which is this virtual reality sex, this smart connected sex toys, this idea has been around ever since the first wave of VR, maybe even before you know, the concept of the internet. And people had these visions that we would all be hooked up to these wonderful suits that would give, provide us with stimulation and would be, we could physically have sex at a distance. And of course, the first wave of VR kind of rose and fell and it was cumbersome. It made people feel sick. There was all this equipment. It wasn't seamless. Even a few years ago, trying to connect a smart sex toy to the internet, I, I tried to do this at work. I had this setup that was, it, it, one of it was a, a kind of a, a cylinder that was like an artificial vagina. And there was a corresponding vibrator that when you matched it, the vibrator movements would be mirrored in the cylinder. So it could be used remotely. And this has been, you know, people were starting to use this for webcam work. So a cam model would have the vibrator, the customer would have the artificial vagina and they would feel as if they were having sex with this person that was remote. But even then, like hooking those up and trying to get them to work, you had to match them, you had to pair them, you had to charge them, you had to get passwords to connect online. It was really, really difficult. Come on a few years and now we have a bit more seamlessness in those sex toy connections. So you can connect via Bluetooth to an app that will control a piece of sex tech. And people are using that more, but it's not the full immersive suit experiences we expected from our VR the first time around. And still, that's just not happening. So we can do it with small pieces of hardware, but we're not into the full immersive experience quite yet. transition to your own dating life, Kate, because I'm sure people are curious, like somebody who's studying sex robots must have a lot of interesting things to say about uh, about love and romance and everything that comes with it. So uh, I happen to know that you have used dating apps, which are, of course, a big theme on our show. Uh, what was your experience like? I have used dating apps. So I, I kind of missed the early days of them. And then when I divorced just as I turned 40, so a few years back. And I went on dating apps for about a year and I had such a great time. That's with caveats. There were also some very interesting responses. Uh, but I find I really enjoyed dating because back before I'd been in long-term relationships and got and got married, dating really wasn't a thing, not the kind of American style dating that we saw on all the TV shows where people went places and had interesting conversations and flirted over cocktails. That just did not happen in the UK. It just was not a thing. So suddenly these dating apps where, you know, you could go and meet people and, you know, it's like a, like a little event, like, you know, just go and, and chat to someone and see if you like them, like a, picking a chocolate from a box of chocolates almost in ways. I really enjoyed it. I love meeting people. 
I love chatting to people. So if I find anyone who looked interesting, who had shared interests or even really weird interests, I'd think, oh yeah, let's go for a coffee and, and see if there's any spark there. And often there wasn't, but I'd have a really nice couple of hours just chatting to, you know, I chatted to a playwright, I chatted to someone who did astrophysics, someone who was a beekeeper. This was all fascinating stuff. <laughs> so I had a really good time. And I did meet a couple of people who I went on to have, you know, dalliances with. Oh, and also I find that as a 40 year old online, suddenly there were all these younger men coming out of the woodwork, late 20s going, oh, I really like older women. <laughs> it's just bizarre. It's like, why? <laughs> why? 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 Um, but that was that was also quite nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a good ego boost. I know why. There's lots to <laughs> offer in your 40s. That's true. <laughs> but yeah. actually, to that point, am I understanding right? You met your current husband, not through one of the dating apps, but on Twitter. Is that right? That is so, right. Yeah. So that is one of the areas that I think it's really interesting for us to explore on this show. So our show is Strangers on the Internet. And most often we end up talking about dating apps, but there's other facets of the internet in which you can meet people. And so how did that come to be? And what's it? Well, I guess one question at a time. How did you guys meet? How did you guys connect and decide, <laughs> hey, this might be worth pursuing? I'm quite a keen Twitter user. I've been on there for about, oof since 2011 maybe so back in early 2018 I had been following this guy that I thought was really funny and smart and I was liking his tweets and he was liking my tweets and it was all very nice and then I I like to tell people that he slid into my dms and he likes to say that it's absolutely not true and actually I reached out to him first but I think we'd had a kind of a brief oh hi oh you're you know you're quite cool and then the March 2018, he and I got into conversation and he sort of eventually said, oh, I have a bit of a crush on you. And I went, oh, I've got a bit of a crush on you. And I said, oh, you should go out and have a drink. And he said, I'd really like that. And uh, um, we planned to meet up two weeks later when he would be in London. I was living in London at the time. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'm in London in two weeks. Let's let's meet for a coffee. And then within the space of about 48 hours, we went, oh, we can't wait anymore. We have to meet tomorrow. Uh, and so I went on my best first date ever. It was wonderful. And um, we've been sort of pretty much inseparable ever since. But it really shocked me because I was not looking for anyone. I was absolutely not looking for anyone. And I had been on dating apps and was having, you know, have, having fun and kind of thinking, you know, it'd be nice to meet someone to kind of have a bit of a longer thing. But I'm not, you know, definitely nothing serious. <laughs> so it surprised me. But it turned out we had quite a lot of mutual friends as well, which was good. We, we find out we, we knew a lot of people in the same circle. So that was quite quite reassuring that he wasn't just you know random stranger on the internet is that how you wound up finding each other on twitter anyway is it because of mutuals i think probably someone had retweeted him into my timeline at some point and that's probably and vice versa and i think that's probably how he came to my attention but he has quite a he has got a significant bigger twitter following than i have and he's quite active in fact he's never off twitter because he's a writer so he's always on there so yeah he it was quite easy so i was going back i was doing that deep dive thing where you go back through people's tweets from years before and then pray that you don't accidentally like one of them so that he knows that you've been following and them. that you don't find anything that you're like oh you actually <sighs> suck based on something you said years yeah. ago well, i did a good deep search and i didn't see anything too worrying so it was okay that's good. What is it like when you tell people that you guys met on Twitter? Do people 
Yeah. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it kind of people are like, what? Twitter? Really? I mean, I think if you're a Twitter user, this seems totally normal. If you're a heavy Twitter user, you're like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I can see how that happens. But if you're someone who isn't really into social media and you don't spend much time on Twitter, you probably think, what in the world are you doing? But it works, it works for us. <laughs> So I also hear he's a little bit younger than you. <laughs> Did you get any weird reactions about that? So how, how old were you two when you I, met? Oh, crikey. Let me try and work this out. It was well, five years ago. So I was 42 and he was, how many years ago is that? He was 34. Yeah, he's eight years younger than me. He likes to say he's a decade uh -huh. younger than me to wind me up. He's not. He is eight years younger than me. It's his birthday tomorrow. So for a very brief period of time, for six days, he's going to be seven years younger than me. <laughs> and then I turn, I turn a year older. So yeah, but that was, that was interesting. So we had, yeah, the usual people going, oh, there's a big age gap. And to me, it's, I've never noticed it at all. We're really similar. Okay, maybe not again when I'll say, oh yeah, I was at university then. And he'll say, oh, I, I was still young in school and then I'll think oh crikey but um yeah it's fine it works yeah it's funny how it comes up with like cultural references and and things like that my first husband was seven years older than I am and then my current husband is two and a half years younger than I am so you know the, my, my current husband and I are more likely to have listened to let's say the same music and stuff like that so that's usually how it will you know it might uh I've never had luck with younger men and I I think many women are in my boat with that but it's always good to hear the exceptions so that it's not a hard and fast rule if there's no use in dating a younger man oh there's definitely a use in dating a younger man <laughs> it's delightful <laughs> Let me ask you about a different topic. You've been very open about a lot of your experiences, such as living with bipolar disorder or the fact that you're poly. What do you think has made you able to talk about some of these things that others try to keep hidden? And what's it been like to talk about those things that not everyone does? Yeah, I'm a bit of an oversharer. <laughs> um, I don't, I think I, I really value honesty. Um, I find it very difficult to hide things and to live hiding things. So I've always been very transparent about what I'm doing or what I'm thinking. And I kind of also hope that it helps other people speak out about what they want or how they live and try to normalize things a little bit more. So living with mental illness has been, you know, at times it's been a horrendous challenge. I've had periods where I've been really ill. I've been through a period of psychosis many years ago when I just finished my PhD. And I've been really lucky because I respond to medication and my moods are stable and I, I live a very stable and quite boring life now compared to some of the ups and downs I've been through. But that has been a relief really to be able to be open about it. I haven't always disclose that immediately there are situations where I don't raise it immediately things like applying for jobs because I'm aware that socially that's going to be something that counts against people if they disclose that information immediately up front but I'm happy to talk about it openly online and get into conversations about it with the poly stuff I've had polyamorous relationships on and off for years my first was when I was a PhD student and I was in a poly setup with a primary partner who was actually a lot older than me he was 13 years older than me and he was Dutch which I think was part of the reason why he was so relaxed and open it was his you know he was the one who kind of said you can 
you can be like this. We can live like this. It's not a problem. Because before I thought, oh, people will think that I'm some kind of deviant or that I'm selfish or, you know, there's all sorts of things that come out with poly relationships. And actually, I find it a, a really happy and lovely way to live. And one of the comments you get about poly relationships, people saying, well, it can't have been very good because you're not still with him. And I think, well, you know, loads of people in monogamous relationships don't stay together forever. I don't think the length of a relationship is a mark of how good that relationship was. But quite often, you know, I've had experience with people, people don't want that from a relationship. So my first husband was adamant that he did not want to be in a poly setup and that was fine. And then after we divorced, I was in a, a really lovely and very relaxed open poly setup with someone else on a very equal footing so there was no primary secondary partner everybody was treated equally I would see other people he would see other people you know I was dating wonderful bunch uh, of folk and it was it was really nice and my current relationship my marriage we're currently monogamous but we don't we've, we talk before we get married and said you know that might not, not always be the way we're both of the same mindset we never rule it out but for us right now it works for us just to be with each other but it's not something we necessarily would say it's you know it's going to be like that forever we may change in the future so again it's the, this openness and one of the things I love about the poly setup is that you have to be honest to make it work and you have to be open you have to talk about negotiate the boundaries of your relationship and that's all I've ever really wanted from relationships is that clarity of where do I stand what is acceptable where are the boundaries and for me that makes me feel really safe and very positive about things it's very interesting I mean I know so many people that are somewhere on the poly spectrum let's say but it's not something that they feel comfortable talking about openly, um, maybe especially this is true of academics. I mean, I've seen very few academics come out as poly, certainly very few legal academics, even though all kinds of arrangements exist, like, like what you just said, like, oh, well, now we're not poly, but we might want to be at some point online. And then certainly COVID has complicated the, the entire situation for poly relationships also, and like what it means now in terms of safety. Now you don't just have to worry about STDs. Now you also have to worry about all this other stuff. So that's thrown a, a wrench into things. But, you know, coming back to the point about mental health how have you navigated that in terms of your relationships and in, in terms of your marriage how do you deal with the ups and downs and and certainly other partners whether they have mental health issues per se or not also have their own ups and, ups and downs so that's i'm sure that's a big topic no matter who you are and, and what kind of relationship so any any thoughts you want to share about that yeah it really is it really is a big deal in a lot of times because well my first husband had mental health problems, severe mental health problems that weren't easily managed. And it was really difficult. I spent, you know, a couple of years solely looking after him, acting as his carer. And it led to all sorts of issues that were compounded by his behavior. He shouldn't get let off the hook for the way he behaved just because he had these mental health problems. He behaved pretty badly. There was cheating. It was gaslighting. It was not pleasant. But at the same time, he was also at times very, very ill. And that always upsets the balance in the relationship. And I have been that ill partner before. So I have been the one who had to be looked after going through a really serious depression. And that really affects the balance of a relationship because when someone becomes a carer, it's very hard to get the spark back. If you spent time trying to keep someone alive, you know, to be able to move back into a relationship that is equal 
or you know even sexual is really difficult so that was definitely has destroyed a relationship for me in the past currently I'm really lucky because my mental health is really good and my husband has also been through depression so he knows he understands how that can be incapacitating we're both doing pretty well so we don't have that issue right now but we're aware that it could happen in the future and we're prepared for that but it's difficult and I think that you know thinking back to how bad it got with my first marriage if someone is really ill if someone is mentally seriously ill you can't love them out of that you can't no matter how much love you give them you can't heal them (laughs) there's something deeper there no matter how much you want to no matter how much you want to will them back into good health it just doesn't work like that and I think I probably spent too long trying to trying to dedicate myself to doing that and neglected my own mental health in the process because you don't want to walk away from someone who's who's feeling that desperate and that bad you don't want to be the person who said I can't cope with this you want to be there for them always but sometimes you just have to sometimes it just is too much so I think it's more yeah it's more boundary setting it's really difficult it's really difficult I would never rule out a relationship with someone who has a mental illness because I've got one myself at the same time I think everyone should go into it knowing that there can be times that are very, very trying and that you've got to take whatever help you can get to go through that. And when you said that you and your current husband have a plan, could you talk some about that? Because I'm sure our listeners would be very interested. Like, okay, off the top of my head, I'm wondering, is the plan... I'm betting it definitely involves clear, open communication about what's happening. (laughs) It involves like counseling and like what I need and what, and and then probably too, what you said about like that education about you can't love me out of this. What else is part of the plan? I think that is the clear communication is one thing. Um, Plans that, you know, I will, I will take my meds. I will make sure that I stay on top of my medication and I will make sure I have my checkups. He will tell me if he's feeling you know, bad in any way, I will say, you know, he will, he will catch on if I'm feeling particularly down, he'll check in with me. We're not saints. <laughs> we're going to get annoyed with each other. <laughs> we're going to bicker. We don't really fight. We're, and he makes me laugh all the time, which is just wonderful. Still early days, you know, it's five years in. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think it's just knowing that things can get bad and saying, well, okay, here's the people you can involve, you know, so I know that my family are very caring but they don't get mental illness they don't really get the depths of how bad it can be compared to physical illnesses so I would not want them worried or involved in my care whereas I trust him I trust some other friends so he would know who to turn to to help make those decisions he is stepfather to my child they adore each other I know that if I get unwell, he'll be there to look after her as well. So it's, yeah, it's really about keeping on top of things. So trying to prioritize health, but knowing that if something goes wrong, there are people that we each trust that could be involved with the care. And there are people who we don't want involved as well. So it's kind of setting out those, those boundaries too. I really love all that. And I really love how proactive you're being I I feel like a lot of people want to kind of stick their hand in the sand and be like okay well things are fine right now whether it's because of mental health or or something else it's like oh let's not worry about the future and then they're going to struggle that much more if the moment comes and they were not prepared and I'm sure everyone understands yes plans might change a mental illness might take a different course this time than it did at a different time right you have to have some flexibility but just kind of thinking ahead and communicating when things are still good and not wait until they get bad. That is so key, I I think, for every relationship. 
It is. And one of the things I think I discovered from going through a really horrible separation and divorce and then subsequently five years of single parenting where I was properly on my own with no family around. My ex-husband was not on the picture at all. I was financially independent. One of the things I learned is just the the depths of resilience when you have to do that. And it massively affects trust. And I don't know that I would ever put as much reliance on anyone ever again as I did on, on my first husband, you know, that because that trust for me was absolutely shattered. But I know that I can and do trust my husband right now, my current husband. But I also know that I'm okay on my own. And having that knowledge that right now, if if I had to, I can rely on myself. That's actually really, really good. So, you know, out of that resilience comes that sense that I I have I am able to stand on my own feet when I need to. But I think that's the really lovely thing about my current relationship is I'm I'm with him because I want to be with him and because I enjoy being with him, not because I have to be. And that's a really lovely thing. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for being our guest today. This was such a wonderful conversation. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko fi. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyujuklu for permission to use this music for this podcast. Bye, everyone.